Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter. I'm the fiction uh, category manager at Booktopia. And I'm here today with Nick, our social media specialist. How are you, Nick? I'm very good, Ben. Um, we're really excited to be doing this chat because uh, we finally get to talk in depth about a book that uh, I've been rambling on about for weeks. Um, uh, our guest today is Laura Jean McKay. And the book we're going to be talking about is The Animals in That Country. Laura, can you hear me? I can, Ben. Thank you. And I like you saying rabbiting on. It's very <laughs> thematically aligned. <laughs> um, it's it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and talk about this book. Uh, it's it's done my head in. Um, and I, I've, I've just spent weeks uh, trying to get it into the hands of more people and, and Nick's read it too um, and a bunch, oh, of, yes. bunch of people in the office are, are kind of getting through it now um, where it's, uh, it's Laura Jean fever at Booktopia. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm glad it's that sort of fever and not um, the bad kind. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I understand you've just moved back to regional New Zealand after living in Melbourne. Um, uh, can you tell us a bit about the move? Was it inspired by the coronavirus thing or was it, uh, um, is it uh, just the end of your PhD and the novel and you just wanted to get away from Australia and, and just sort of go home? Or, or are you a bit nervous about, uh, were you a bit nervous about doing the whole um, famous author thing and being flown around and visiting people? Um, uh, what's brought you back to New Zealand? <laughs> well, today I'm supposed to be in Melbourne um, launching the animals in that country, um, following some nice times at the Sydney Writers Festival. So I, I'm feeling a little heartbroken um, mm. <laughs> to, to not be going around. Um, I, I am actually Australian, so moving to New Zealand was a new thing for me, and um, it was very, it was just very fortuitous. I needed a job. Um, I got a job as a lecturer in creative writing uh, in a, a small, big country town. And um, at the time when I first moved here, it seemed very dramatic um, to be moving away from a place that I really loved um, to a place I, I didn't know so well, even though my partner is a Kiwi. Um, you know, New Zealand is a beautiful place. Um, but suddenly um, the the terrible summer bushfires happened in Australia and, and many places where I grew up were absolutely ravaged. And then soon after that, the pandemic has hit um, and suddenly being in a small, um, very safe country um, in, uh, you know, with a job is, is just the luckiest position to be in, in the world, really. Yeah, I can imagine that's a bit bamboozling. I think there's yeah. a lot of people who are completely bamboozled at the moment. Um, I understand this is a novel that um, uh, has consumed your life. Um, this novel and the associated research, um, it's kind of been going on for more than half a decade. Um, where did the whole thing begin? And can you elaborate a bit about your newfound expertise and hard-found expertise as a um major expert in animal communication. <laughs> yeah, where do novels start? Um, there was this kangaroo that I met on a path in the dark in the when I was living in the um, Australian bush on the outskirts of Melbourne. And we had this moment um, together where neither of us were particularly scared um, and we both just stared at each other for a while. And I often pinpoint the beginning 
of the novel to that moment with this kangaroo, even though that was a decade ago. Um, and I, even though I started some scribblings, I didn't really start proper work on the novel um, until about seven years ago, which is still a long time. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a slow writer. Um, don't tell my publisher that. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I mean, to me, the animals in that country – is two novels really it's um it's a speculative fiction um that that you know takes us into this world of of communicating animals and and how humans react to that and then it's another novel that is a gritty realist novel about a woman who um likes her booze and her ciggies and is going through a terrible divorce and really struggles with relationships and she finds a relationship um, with a dingo called Sue who happens to be able to talk to her. And so bringing, knitting these two novels together and making them work together was was the time-consuming thing and I knew I needed to get it right for myself and for what I wanted to say about our relationships with animals but also just for readability. <laughs> <laughs> And I let me tell you, there were some, there were some drafts that that were not readable. Um, ben, they were, they needed work and time. Well, you've <laughs> given it work and time. Um, and I and I've heard that you've you've been to a lot of places and you've met a lot of people and and, and done a lot of hard research. I, I read somewhere that you met Michael that Jackson's former chimpanzee pet, Bubbles. Yes, I went. To- to Florida and I was really fascinated at the time. I didn't really know why I was going there, but I was fascinated by the fact that there were all these star show uh, chimpanzees and orangutans and where did they end up? And I, I found that there are actual sanctuaries, almost like retirement communities um, for chimpanzees and orangutans. So I went to Florida to the Center for Great Apes and I met Bubbles, um, who was who is the old companion of Michael Jackson and Jackson didn't leave any money to look after Bubbles in his old age so Bubbles is a chimpanzee who can pick up a bit of poo or um, or a bit of dirt and aim it at your camera if you happen to bring one out with an incredible amount of accuracy he's so traumatized by the idea of paparazzi and being looked at um, yeah, but wow. now he's living you know this this um I mean, as, as good a life as he can live, I suppose, in a sanctuary. Um, and he's got he's got a best friend called Ripley, and um, you know they they do their things together, make art. They make a bit of art actually, which is nice. <laughs> it's it's one of uh, it's it's so fascinating how you've kind of been able first not just with kind of bubbles and seeing that some of how how animals react to particular situations, but kind of within the book itself. One of the most kind of bizarre but also weirdly fascinating parts of the book is the actual language that you use when the animals begin to speak. It can be quite haunting, it can be quite, it can be comforting, it can be confusing, it can say a little, it can say a lot. Kind of from this, all this huge amount of research that you did around animal communication and how they communicate with animals, what how was that process of translating it to the page? Because I imagine it would have been very difficult. 
Well, those moments like meeting bubbles um, and going and living in a wildlife park in the Northern Territory and also spending a lot of time just looking, staring at animals wherever I went, um, those moments didn't really translate directly into the novel. There's not necessarily scenes that I recreated from real animal encounters, but every encounter I had um, shifted my idea of how we relate to other animals and more importantly how they might relate to us and the animal dialogue if I could call it that um, was almost its own separate book I wrote I wrote the dialogue in a way that I've never written before usually I write a lot and then I edit down and edit down and rework and and it's almost like whittling away it's like I have to write the tree and then sort of <laughs> whittle it back to find um, what I'm writing about but with the animal dialogue I just I was building on it um, and every time I did an edit I, I added another layer to it um, so I would put it through um, computer processes I would put it through Google Translate and translate it into strange poetry then I'd go and make a song out of it and I can't sing or play the piano but I, I did <laughs> so I have a number of, of tracks that no one will ever hear about moths talking and pigs and and dogs and then I would take it back and put it back on the page and rework it and so it was just this very strange ongoing process and it didn't really um it didn't really come together t until towards the very end that's such uh, a fascinating process of distillation about sort of trying to take language as as we might understand it um, and almost uh, just discombobulate it <laughs> into into something completely new. Um, but when you read it, it makes sense. Um, it, it it just catches you by surprise, and it it, it can it can really shock in some in some. It's one places. of my favorite one of my favorite parts of the book. Just out of nowhere, you'll have there'll be moments where poor Jean is utterly confused around what uh, what an animal might be trying to say, and yet suddenly out of nowhere, it all clicks and it all makes sense. Um, very yeah yeah yeah. Um, and and I think that that making sense of everything um, was a process of developing characters as well. I wanted at the beginning um, the language to seem very, very confusing and then as it goes on it, it starts to come together a little more. Mm. And I guess I, I don't know if anybody else will read into it as, as much as I did, but at the beginning um, Sue is, is calling um, the main character, Jean, a queen. And then as it goes on um, and she increases in power over Jean, um, she starts calling her other things until the end um, she's calling her cat dog and things like that um, and less um, less complimentary things so um, the power shift was really important to me to try and show that through the dialogue as well and I was really lucky to have a publisher um, in Marika Webb Pullman who was really on board and had a really really clear vision and the same vision for the animal dialogue that I did um, and we we had a what was supposed to be I think a half hour meeting that turned into a two hour meeting, where um, I sort of stood up and gave her an impromptu lecture on the <laughs> power of dialogue in books, and she got really excited and started talking about the way we could represent it on the page, and just having someone who was so there with me um, 
to go on this strange journey, uh, I, I just really lucked out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, she, I think she lucked out too in, in having you as an author. Um, can you talk us talk to us a little bit about um, the character of Jean? Um, what <sighs> motivates her? What, what, what was your decision to uh, make her the, the very special person that she is? Um, she she lives yeah we meet her she's she lives in a caravan outside a um uh, animal sanctuary in the far north of the country and you were at some stage living in a caravan in the far north of the country as well uh but i don't see you as very similar people (laughs) (laughs) you can't see what i'm drinking right now no (laughs) um yeah so i uh, Look, Jean was at that point a very, very, um, not very exciting farmer um, <laughs> with a religious bent. And I got this amazing residency to go and, and live in the caravan in, in this wildlife park. And while I was there, um, I realised that some of the novel needed to be set there and then eventually it took over. Um so, I mean, it was just such a dramatic landscape um, and and Jean, or I really found Jean up there um, with the people that I was interviewing and talking to and also the animals that I was around as well. But Jean's a funny one because I, I used the name Jean because I needed to be able to get closer to this character. And, of course, Jean is my middle name and it was originally a bit of a trick. Um, you know, I'll just I'll just give her my name and then... And then I'll find her. And then, of course, once she had my name, she just took it and and um, and just carried on along the page. But I think there is a lot in me that sees the world the same way that Jean does. Um, we've had very different experiences. Um, you know, I'm revoltingly overeducated. <laughs> I've done, you know, a billion degrees, and and I, I haven't had the same hardships as Jean has. But I think when it comes down to it. Um, uh, there is a huge part of me in Jean. Um, you know, there is a, a sweary smoker inside me um, who who was allowed to come out on this page. But then other people say that they find they see themselves in Jean as well. My mum is sure that that Jean has elements of her as well. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Maybe she's an every woman for some people. She reminds yeah. me of one of the, of those very tough like women from because I grew up in the country. And like the really kind of tough matriarchs of of families, just absolutely. Um, mm. You know, I'm really. I grew up um, with grandparents. We lived with both sets of my grandparents, and neither of them were really like this. But I am quite obsessed with grandparent figures, and I had a lot of friends and relatives who had these really nuggety, often um, heavy smoking, um, sort of leathery skinned grandmas, and they were so tough and so cool, and um, pretty full on and hard out, but also so caring. It's sort of that, you know, that woman with a heart of gold. Um, and I was really around those people a lot um, when I was growing up in Lake Centrance, um, in, in Gippsland, in Sale. And then when, later when I lived in Queensland, I feel like there were a lot of women like that. So I guess it is a bit of an homage to, to those incredible grandmas um, of the world. <laughs> um, we went to a great deal of places in the um, creation of this novel. Um, I'm just wondering if you've done a great deal of reading as well. What kind of literary pursuits did you look at when you were trying to put this thing together? Did you um, 
was a literature you went through with uh, uh, animal language or, or literature where the kind of human and natural worlds collide. Um, do you have books on this kind of subject area that you absolutely love or absolutely despise and wanted to uh, recreate? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> when I first started writing, I thought, oh, this is a this is a bit funny. People don't write about talking animals for grown-up books, um, even though, of course, you know, we have George Orwell's Animal Farm and, and Black Beauty who, who change people's perspectives of the world. Um, but I still felt quite shy about it. And then a good friend, Anna Crean, released her quarterly essay, Us and Them, and it was very much focused on animal-human relationships and, and how, how we are with animals in the world. And I thought, oh, shit, this is a serious, this is a serious writer writing seriously about this. Um, you know, and it really helped me to have the courage to move forward. And then I discovered books like Eva Hornung's Dog Boy, uh, which really was one of those books where I, I've never looked at a dog the same way again after that book. Um and then came uh, Peter Goldsworthy's Wish, which is a very strange animal communication book. There's an amazing writer called Suniti Namjoshi, um, a British writer who writes books called The Conversations of Cow, which is basically a philosophical, you know, meditation on, on a talking cow. So wow. there were a number of books that I started to come across. Uh, and as I, as I developed my research, um, these books started coming out and of course Caradwin Dovey's um, Only the Animals then came mm. out and I was so excited about that. Um, so there was, I realised there was really a place for this and increasingly um, people are turning towards environmental concerns and animal concerns and saying maybe the way that we've been living and the way that we've been treating um non-humans, plants and animals, um, isn't right. Maybe we need to start thinking in a different way. And so there was definitely – my way was paved with some really brave books. Yes. Um, yes. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I'm just opening a door because my cat is pouring at the <laughs> wall trying to get in. Your cat um, knows. <laughs> I actually have a, a, a kind of a, a interesting point to lead, to, to lead off of this. Is that kind of why this story mattered so much to you? Because, I mean, particularly, I mean, you and I have had, already had a couple of conversations, particularly about the ending of the book and how you had to really kind of fight for it. Um, not only within the actual writing and creating process, but just the last couple of lines that just, they hit you really hard. Um, is that kind of what, why it kind of drove you to tell this story in the way that you did? The, the ending of the book um, came really, really early for me um, and I tend to, to write to images so um, I, I get a very very clear image in my head and I can't let it go and I need to I need to write towards it and sometimes it takes me seven years apparently <laughs> um, <laughs> and with this I had a very very clear image it's not I don't think it's really giving the ending away but I had a very clear image of a woman on a road with a dingo um, and I, it, that image just wouldn't let me go and and so but I did get feedback um, in in earlier drafts that um, you know that that wasn't the right ending or um, you know it it 
it, it, it wasn't sort of fulfilling the the needs of the book or it wasn't character driven enough um, and I, I did need to fight for that and I felt like I need to, needed to fight for a lot of aspects of the book the whole way through. You know, when I first started studying, because I did a PhD on this thing, <laughs> I'm a doctor <laughs> of animal studies now, a doctor of talking animals, um, I when I first said, you know, I'm I'm um, I'm doing animal studies. People would laugh. <laughs> um, you know that that's not a serious thing to do. And then, um, you know, when I said I had this strange flu in the book, you know, people would think, oh, that that's a bit that's a bit twee. You know, a strange big strange flu is never going to happen. Um, you know, and, and the <laughs> I know. <laughs> speak too soon. Um, yeah, so I felt that I was really fighting the whole way through, and especially as my early drafts, as I've said, are absolutely terrible. Um, and it's really hard for me to explain to people this image that I'm fighting for, that I'm working towards, um, when I've got all these awful drafts coming out. And so it took a long, long time to for me to get what I was seeing in my head onto the page. Did I answer your question at all? <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, it's it's it, look, it's very fascinating to to also hear about the actual creative process, particularly around <laughs> something you're so invested in. But it was kind of driving back to the why of 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 that you that this story drove you in the end, and led you down the path that that it did. Oh yeah, okay, thank you. Get me back <laughs> on track. Um, there there is something about um. There is something about the way that we are with animals and that I was with animals that that didn't sit right with me. And language is a huge part of that. So it's a huge part of um, our sort of human e exceptionalism. Um, you know, we are better than other animals because we have language. We're smarter than them because we have language. Um, you know, they're, they're not really saying anything. And so I thought, what if what if I took that away? What if that language thing was eradicated and we did share a common language uh, for a moment? Um, not to prioritise um, English or to prioritise human language as the best thing, but what if? Um, what if animals could speak to us and we could understand what they were saying? And so once I took that away, it opened up this whole thing of how um, how we actually treat them. You know, if you've got a pig, a battery pig, um, stumbling out of a of a truck, what are you going to say to them? <laughs> like, what what can we say? Um, what can we say that is going to make it all better? Maybe nothing, um, or maybe we'll start to change the way that um, that we see them. Maybe yeah. they become they be, we get we have a shared experience, you know, and it's really messed with my brain the writing of this. I can't, you know, I talk to flies now, and um, I can't really look at animals anymore without um, really wanting to have some sort of exchange, which I'm sure bugs the hell out of a lot of animals. You know, they just want to be <laughs> left alone, and I'm there gazing intently into their eyes, <laughs> trying to have a moment with them. <laughs> Well, that's good. I, th I think that's that's what your novel has achieved for a lot of people. You know, um, it's driven me a bit bonkers, um, and I think it's doing that the same thing to a lot of readers. Is that it's it's changing their perception of how um, they view other species and and um, our place as as human beings um, on this on this little planet. Um, there's a huge hello Lola. Um, there's a huge amount of uh, scientific research that you've alluded to. Um, 
And there's also this wonderful um, uh, invention and play in language to achieve um, what we get out of this book. Was there a friction between the two? Between science and play? Yeah, between the kind of creation and the, uh, the hard data. That's such an amazing and complex question. I'm not entirely sure that I understand it. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Am I allowed to say I'm, that or should I just, I'm, no, should no, I just pretend? No, it's good. It means I'm done poorly. Uh, uh, you, you, you've got this PhD, which I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to really get my head around, in, in animal communication, right? Um, that uh, you, You've gone and, 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 and met. Uh, people who are kind of dedicated to animals and, and gone to animal sanctuaries um, and had residencies there. Um, so there's there's this there's this sense of um, uh, um, admiration for the animal world and this uh, this this kind of scientific or or um, uh, hard knowledge about it. Uh, what you do as a novelist is a whole a bunch of play a whole bunch of invention and this novel is um in times really at times really moving but also it's really funny um is there a, is there a friction between the really serious job that you're trying to do and the wonderful amount of fun you're trying to have to get there yeah i see what you're saying that's that's a great question um so as a researcher you're so reliant on scientific data and and also the legacy of of literary theory of you know of what has come before and what brings us to this point to be able to write in the way that we do about the things that we write about but also i think because um talking about animals in this way is fairly new there was a lot of of room for playfulness and also pushing against that tradition that says um, we need to look at animals in this way and we're not allowed to anthropomorphize because um, you know that's putting ourselves in the same category as animals and um, you know let's go forth and and treat them as as um, you know mechanical things that we prod and and study um, but then there's people like incredible people like Jane Goodall who when she was first in the forests of uh, in the jungles of Tanzania would look at chimpanzees and and say and attribute human feelings to them you know um, mm. you know um, Bobo was angry today um, and slapped you know Carrie um, <laughs> and she would take these findings uh, back to the scientific community and was absolutely ridiculed ridiculed um, for that um, and so you have these people who have forged ahead and have played and have brought emotion to um, to these scientific and literary studies and so it was a really a joy for me to look especially at literary theory and go no um, we are allowed to anthropomorphize because that's our very very limited and pathetic human way of trying to relate to these incredible creatures you know how can I how can I understand a bat who 
perceives the world through sonar, which I can't even comprehend. And I could try to comprehend in a scientific way, but in a wondering way, um, how can I possibly relate to them unless I try to imagine myself with sonar um, and try to imagine what it would be to go through the sky, um, feeling my way through with these, this echolocation. And I think that wondering is something that our relationship with animals gives us. When we look at other animals, we are allowed to wonder again in a way that we're not allowed to when we look at other humans um, and we're not allowed to with, with the internet really. And that's just this gorgeous place of creativity and something that when you're working in isolation and when um, people have definitely stopped believing in your project and are telling you to stop it, <laughs> um, you all you've got left is play and that wondering space. Um, and I'll have to remember when I'm in the middle of my next ridiculous um, project that's going on for too long that that's a really fortunate place to be. Um, and yeah, I feel very lucky for the animals that I met and the people that I met and the research that was done before me um, that I was able to to have that time to experiment and make mistakes. Yes, and I'm so glad that you persisted and, and saw it through to the end and produced this <laughs> wonderful, strange thing. Um, <laughs> did you have fav a, a, a favourite animals to write? Oh my goodness, that is such a good question. Um, I mean, Dingo Sue, actually Dingo Sue was pretty difficult and she's still a bit of an enigma to me and I love that I wanted to keep her, um, I wanted to keep her a little bit safe <laughs> from, from me. I wanted to keep her a little bit mysterious um, and she remains that way for me, even though I created her. I did love writing the insects. Um, people have said that they find the way they scream across the page quite terrifying but to me it's quite a joyous yell um, That's my they, bit. <laughs> they, they were triumphant for, for me and it was nice to think of these creatures when there's a lot of other creatures in the novel you know like farmed animals and and animals that have been used for show who are going through a terrible time and the insects are just going for it and they're just screaming for blood and having a pretty good time really <laughs> Nick, what about you? Do you have a, did you have a favourite animal to read? Oh, goodness. Um, well, and, um, and did you perhaps imagine the birds speaking with Italian accents? Or was that just me? <laughs> I actually did wonder about the actual accents that the animals would speak with. Um, it's it, when I was when I was reading it. And the, the one that that uh, that kind of very much stuck with me was just a lot of the, the the first I just kind of I, I obviously a bit of a mild spoiler here but the first time that you hear Jean the the animals actually begin to speak to Jean it, oh, correct me if it was it was the mice in the, yes, which yes. is genuinely not only just the unsettling nature of the fact that you're in a zoo and these mice are, are used for slaughter Mm. Uh, well, for food for the, for the other animals in the zoo, but the fact that they're in a situation where you know they'll be gassed and uh, will be you know handed uh, eventually will be kind of you know become just a piece of of meat in the eyes. Of actually, actually being able to understand what they were thinking was a moment that just kind of stuck with me throughout the remainder of the book. I'm not sure if I it was like in terms of a favourite. <laughs> it was just I. In, 
I didn't really have a favourite. I just embraced the weirdness of it and the slowly demented state that Jean was finding herself in. And I think that's probably just you picked the perfect person by which to perceive all of this from as Jean slowly descends and descends and descends into into in uh, and being able to discover more animals in more detail. It was just amazing. Um mm. Very difficult. Very difficult question, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Another animal that was really interesting to write actually was um, before they start talking, um, there's a, a crocodile who appears. And there was a crocodile up in the wildlife park where I was staying. And I would spend a lot of time staring at this croc because they're, I mean, they're, they're dinosaurs, the most incredible creatures. And as I did a, just a little bit of research, um, I found an article that, that had had decided that crocodiles like to play and they'd, they'd worked out that, that some crocodiles like to piggyback each other across <laughs> estuaries um, just for the sake of it, just because it's fun. And I thought, well, that's really that's really lovely. I want to make the crocodile in, in this novel um, have some playfulness. And that's going back to that play as well. You know, it's amazing to dis- that scientists go out and spend a long time discovering these things. <laughs> um. Laura, we're, uh, I could talk about this book forever, um, but there's one thing I, I really need to ask about. Um, you uh, suffered a, a really um, potent illness. Um, uh, I recall from our discussion um, uh, when I met you before this book was published, um, uh, and it, I think it's left a, uh, you, know, you, you explained a, a great deal of agony and isolation um and it was during the time when you were composing this book um has that left a mark on this novel um and uh now that the world is uh in kind of shutdown from uh an invisible deadly pest um is there anything um you wish you could have uh, gone back and, and told yourself um going into a kind of uh, social isolation and, uh, and, and and kind of ongoing fear of illness. Mm. So, yeah, that illness was wild because it was given to me by a, an animal. <laughs> so a mosquito bit me um, when I was at a writer's festival in Bali. Um, well, actually bit and then licked. It's the lick that gives you the disease and gave me something that they describe as um, dengue on crack. And <laughs> I was um, I was really debilitated for for many months. I, I really couldn't move. I had full body arthritis, um, and picking things up, um, it felt like my bones were breaking. And I also went into this extreme delirium and thought I was turning into a mosquito, and that really infected the book. Um, you know, I, I think I've said to you, Ben, it, it felt like the book caught the illness um and what i had wasn't a flu actually but it it sort of naturally turned into a flu because it's something that a lot of people can catch and um the people in this novel needed to catch it so that they could talk to the animals um so this epidemic occurred um but it really really it really influenced the book i wrote a lot of the novel very very ill and from bed and there were certainly huge rewrites that i did that i I barely remember doing um, because I was in such a state, but I was moving forward and possibly it really helped um, the creation and it might also explain some of the wackiness 
<laughs> you know. Yeah, well, the, the delirium is, is certainly in there. Yeah, mm. people read this and think, you know, this is written by a woman who seems like she's in the middle of a terrible fever and her skin is peeling off. <laughs> it was happening. It was happening. Uh, and and once I had that, of course, I had to keep going. And it also helped with the traje- trajectory of, of uh, Jean's illness and her and Sue's relationship. You know, it takes a journey, just like an illness takes you on a journey. Um, I mean, as far as the pandemic goes, I feel like I spent, you know, a good four or five, probably four years, let's say, quite ill and with the after effects of that illness and and other chronic illnesses developing from that. And so, frankly, this year I was really looking forward to being out and about in the world and (laughs) talking about the novel with other people. Um, So, you know, rather than learning from my wise experience of essentially being in lockdown isolation, I've just felt really, really um, kind of sad and and worried for the world, really. Um, Yeah, I haven't learned from my my, I haven't learned from my wise time at all. Well, it's it's it was kind of interesting, and this was kind of a, a point that I wanted to ask you about. But it's just so fascinating to me that you, this book has come out now, right now, in a situation where we have this this illness sweeping the world, and in a weird way, you have this fantastic book, and there's almost a, a something obviously not a, a to the scale in terms of the actual illness, but life imitating art in a strange way as a kind of a last point for me to ask is you know how do you view the book now in particularly within the context of where we are now and also the fact that you've had time away from it is it does it sit with you differently than the day you finished it I was doing the final, um, you know, the final proofread, the final sort of, you know, make sure the T's are dotted and the I's are crossed and whatnot, or the other way around, um, uh, while the pandemic was was forming and we were really starting to hear some serious, um, you know, some serious reports about the pandemic. And that was very, very weird to be reading scenes that, that matched on to what was happening in the news. Um, in a way, it was a re- it was a relief because I couldn't change anything in the book, and I wouldn't have wanted to. It would have been it would have felt it would have felt so strange to have been writing or fictionalising the pandemic when so many people were suffering from it. Um, and the novel just was the novel at that point. Now I'm finding it really interesting to see what matches on and see what what deviates. Um, you know, and that's coming from from readers um, who are getting back to me and telling the, me what they think and and parts of the book they they found that really correlated with the pandemic and other parts that took them away to another place. I'm hoping that um, the animal human connection um, is something that really resonates with people and can take them away from what we're going through at the moment. Um, But I also hope that maybe um, I got some bits right and and that maybe um, the elements of illness in there can, can, I don't know, help somebody. I don't know. Do books help people? I don't know what, I don't know what I think. It's, it's, it's shocking that it's come out at this time. Um, but I hope that doesn't put people off. <laughs> no, it, it, it shouldn't. And, and there's sure this this book has a 
a, a flu epidemic in it, which is this wonderful coincidence with what we're currently going through. But it's so, so different. Um, you know, people are kind of saying that you know, this, this book has really changed them. Um, and it, it's certainly done a number on me. I, 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 going into your novel, I, I, I knew it would be good. Um, and I started reading it and I kind of thought, oh, I, I know where this is going. I'm on board with this. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm cool. And then by the end, it just like hit me over the head with a, a cricket bat. And I was just like um, unconscious. Like I was, I was just um, not, not like, you know, bored, but like and asleep or narcotics, but like uh, just like, you know, hit for six. <laughs> Um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, we. Yeah, no. Um, um, has the experience of putting this whole project together, um, and the PhD, all of this travel, uh, has that changed you in a permanent way? Do you believe? Absolutely. I'm. I definitely look at the world in a different way um, by going through this experience, and I think I do write books so that I will change, um, and I will start to see the world differently. Um, as I said, my relationship with animals has certainly changed. Um, my relationship with um, eating them and, and thinking about them has changed and also perhaps my relationship with the environment has changed um, you know while I've been writing this book climate change has has um, you know has really really made some huge marks on the world and the way that um, Australia is one of the has the very dubious honor of being one of the leading countries in extinction events um, mm -hmm you know, is something that has really come to the forefront for me and writing about Australian animals in this piece really, really brought home um, what we need to do to try to change and, and shift our behaviour in order to keep some of the animals that we're lucky enough to share this world with. Mm. Makes you appreciate what you've got. Mm. Um, what will you do next? <laughs> Um, I have started writing uh, a new, I, I'm not really calling it a novel yet, but I have started writing something new. Um, I, I didn't intend for it to be speculative. I'd really love to get back to some gritty realism. But what I'm finding is that the, the speculative, wacky, you know, plague books that I'm reading now, like Severance by Ling Ma, <laughs> that's that's actually what the world is like now. So we're now living in the future. And then when I read something like, um, you know, The Adversary by Ronnie Scott, which is, um, you know, a book set in, in Melbourne, very realist, suddenly that's a nostalgia book. So, <laughs> so I'm finding myself um, once again leaning towards with a speculative bent, but maybe it isn't speculative at all. Maybe, maybe that's what realism is now. This strange, this strange um, way that we have to live in the world. Um, but uh, yeah, it's quite watery what I'm writing at the moment. Um, so watery. See, yeah, it's quite watery. <laughs> so I'll see okay. where that takes me. <laughs> Laura, it's been <laughs> yeah. such a, a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Um, I, I can only wish you uh, 
the very best for whatever this weird next adventure is going to be. Um, and I can't wait to read it, especially if it's going to take seven years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's hope not. I'll try and be a bit quicker. I'll write fast. And another PhD. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Will they take me back is the question. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for your support of Booktopia. You're just, you've just been incredible. It, it means everything to authors um, to have people like you doing things like this. Oh, well, uh, people like you make it worthwhile. Um, <laughs> the Animals in That Country is published by Scribe, and of course you can buy it from booktopia.com.au or if you've got a local independent bookseller, um, go out and support them as well. Um, our guest has been Laura Jean McKay. She's been wonderful. Thank you very much for listening, and as always, happy reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com dot au